Hey, Leah. Hey, Fallon. And hey, listeners. Uh, We are the hosts of a podcast called The Secret Life of Canada. We are a history podcast. Yeah, and we've covered topics, things like the gold rush or the bay blanket. Yes. Kind of unconventional stories, though, that you might have missed in your Canadian history class. So we're here to uncover those secrets. That's right. Check us out wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Discover what millions around the world already have. Audible has Canada's largest library of audiobooks, including exclusive content curated by and for Canadians. Experience books in a whole new way, where stories are brought to life by powerful performances from renowned actors and narrators. With the free Audible app, you can listen anytime, anywhere, whether you're at home, in the car, or out on a jog. The first 30 days of the Audible membership are free, including a free book. Go to www.audible.ca slash cbc to learn more. I'm Eleanor Wachtel, and this is Writers and Company. Today, to mark the 100th anniversary of the Treaty of Versailles, my conversation with British historian Neil Ferguson about his book, The Pity of War, and Canadian Margaret Macmillan about Paris 1919. The First World War was initially described as the war to end all wars, but to many historians and critics, it became the war that ended all peace, almost a hundred years of peace since the defeat of Napoleon, a war that marked a whole new scale of fighting and dying, a war that triggered a century of destruction and totalitarianism. It was a war like none other before it, and similarly, the peace negotiations that followed were like no other. The Paris Peace Conference not only had to determine a stable agreement with Germany, but also to reconfigure the world, from the wreckages of the Austro-Hungarian and Ottoman empires, to drawing new maps of Africa, the Middle East, Central and Southeastern Europe, and even Asia and the Pacific. The creation, for instance, of Iraq, Burundi, Rwanda, and Yugoslavia, all recent war zones. The First World War also produced an extraordinary amount of literature, poems, plays, novels, and memoirs by people who lived through it, and more recently, fiction and movies that evoke that time. Historians never left the subject. Hundreds of thousands of books have been written about the First World War. In the past two decades, there have been new titles with wide popular appeal. Neil Ferguson is a prolific economic historian and political commentator with best-selling books about the Rothschilds, Henry Kissinger, about early 20th century German business and politics, the British Empire, about money and power in the modern world, and an iconoclastic study of the First World War called The Pity of War. Neil Ferguson was born in Glasgow in 1964. He studied at Oxford, taught at Cambridge and Oxford, as well as New York University, Harvard, and the London School of Economics. He's now a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford and at the Center for European Studies at Harvard. The author of 14 books, his latest title is The Square and the Tower, Networks and Power, From the Freemasons to Facebook. Margaret Macmillan catapulted to international success in 2002 when she became the first woman to win England's biggest nonfiction award, the $70,000 Samuel Johnson Prize. She also won Oxford's Duff Cooper Prize and the 2003 Canadian Governor General's Award for nonfiction, 
all for her ambitious and intensely readable account of the peace process. Paris 1919, Six Months That Changed the World. It was a book that changed her life. Margaret Macmillan was born in Toronto in 1943. She studied at the University of Toronto and at Oxford. A social historian, she taught at Ryerson University in Toronto for 25 years. She then became professor of history and provost of Trinity College at the University of Toronto and warden of St. Anthony's College at Oxford. In 2015, Margaret Macmillan gave the Massey Lectures in Canada. And last year, she delivered the BBC's Wreath Lectures, entitled The Mark of Cain, exploring the tangled history of war and society and our complicated feelings towards it and towards those who fight. She's also published a book called The War That Ended Peace, The Road to 1914. I spoke to Neil Ferguson and Margaret Macmillan in 2003 in Toronto. It's clear that you're both interested in stories and storytelling. Neil Ferguson, you first thought of yourself as a writer, as an adolescent in Glasgow, and you knew you wanted to write books. But when did you realize you wanted to write about history? I suppose I was doing it from early on, if you mean economic history, which is the thing that's been central uh, to my work. When I was an undergraduate, Uh, at Oxford. I had all kinds of literary pretensions. In many ways I discovered that that I had no great talent for writing fiction. As a journalist I was mediocre because I was only interested in a relatively small number of things, whereas journalists need to be interested in everything, more or less equally interested. And uh, and as I uh, experimented by trial and error, I discovered the only thing I was any good at was was writing history. I failed at everything else and resorted uh, uh, in desperation to writing history. Failed in politics, failed as a double bassist, failed as an actor, failed as um, more or less anything you care to mention. And finally, in my final year, despairing of any other possibilities of of gainful employment, I I resolved to write a a PhD in history. And it really was as a last resort. If if emigration to the empire had been an option, uh, I'd probably have taken that, but I was a bit too late for that one. Because I read somewhere that it it, it came down to comparing Hamlet and the Thirty Years' War. Yes. And you found that there was more scope in the Thirty Years' War. Yes, uh, and I loved studying literature. I mean, immersing myself in, in, in Hamlet was one of the great educational experiences of my life, and it, it, the play lives with me to this day. But then something funny happened, which didn't tend to happen with the study of literature at school, and that was that uh, in working on the Thirty Years' War, uh, it occurred to me that there were quite a few books in the Thirty Years' War over and above the ones that we were reading in class. And I went to the Mitchell Library in Glasgow, uh, and I discovered in translation uh, Friedrich uh, Schiller's History of the Thirty Years' War, a wonderful, wonderful book, which uh, included detail about the origins of the Thirty Years' War, which simply wasn't in the books we were using at school. And this sense that there were just infinite possibilities to the study of the past, that they couldn't really be with the study of classic texts out there uh, when one's trying to recapture past events. There really is no limit on how much information uh, you can draw upon, whereas ultimately there are only so many ways that you can read Hamlet. It's the product of one man's mind, whereas history is the product of an infinite number of minds. Margaret McMillan, what first drew you to history? I think probably the same sorts of things that that drew Neil. Um, At one point I realized as I grew to be almost six feet I couldn't be a ballet dancer or a figure skater, so that 
that career option was I, I wasn't musical anyway, so gave that up. And I loved history. I mean, I, we, we grew up in, in Canada on something called Our Island Story, which was all about the British Isles, and had pictures of Boadicea looking like a pre-Raphaelite heroine and, and wonderful stories about Boadicea and King Alfred and the cakes. And I loved the stories. And I think I, I just developed a sense that the past was somewhere interesting, infinite stories. Um, and I began to realize as I got older that you could always ask different questions. And although I liked English, I mean, I, I followed really I'm, I'm much the same path as I think Neil Ferguson did. I liked English, and I was quite good at it. I mean, I could write essays, you know, talking about images of food in Hamlet, but I didn't quite believe in it. Um, I never quite believed in what I was doing. I never quite thought it made sense. I never thought it was as real as history, and maybe that's just because I have a more prosaic mind than than that. And so I, sim I simply got into it. I found I liked it. Um, I found historians I liked. I loved reading it, and I've never stopped liking it. You say that narrative history is coming back. What, what well, I think it is. Well, it's, what is it replacing? Well, for a while in history, and it's still there. I mean, history is a very large and complicated edifice, I think. And there was a lot of interest in cultural history, a lot of interest in intellectual history, a lot of interest in how identities are created. So how do I become a woman? How do I become a Canadian? Whatever. And these are interesting questions, but they, they more and more, it seemed to me, brought in the historian as, as the mastermind who did all this stuff, the, the historian as creator. I mean, in a way, it was being affected by what was happening in, in literature, I think, very much the sort of the, some of the new theories that were affecting the study of literature, where the critic became much more important than the writer or the reader. And in history, I think you did get a trend, which I it found interesting, but what basically wasn't sympathetic with, where the historian became enormously important and what actually happened in the past became less important. And the thing about the past is it turned out one way and not the other. And I think it's very important to, to, to know that. I mean, causality, it seems to me, is very important. Why did it happen in this way? Why did the First World War break out in this way and end up in this way? And so to ignore that in history, I think, is to ignore a very important part of history. And I think as human beings, I mean, we have beginnings and ends and middles, and so I think narrative history makes a lot of sense to us. I, I think it also makes a good story, and I think that's why the public like it. They like to know what happened and why and, and who these people were who were doing it all. Now, you've both written major works, provocative books, about the First World War. Where does that particular interest come from? Oh, in my case, it was uh, from a very early age, uh, since my father's father fought in the First World War, and my school, Glasgow Academy, is a war memorial. It was formerly dedicated to the the, the dead uh, after the First World War, and I grew up with the very strong impression that I suspect most middle-class uh, Glaswegians of my generation uh, gained that the First World War was the most important event in history, and that one had to understand it, to understand what had gone wrong. This is because so many Scottish were killed in the war? Yeah, mortality rate is very high in Scotland. It's far higher than it was for the, uh, the British Isles as a whole, almost double uh, the average for the British Isles. So I think, uh, on balance, Scottish families were disproportionately affected. So we're talking uh, uh, half, more than half a million men and more than 25% It's 26% uh, was the Scottish mortality rate, insofar as we can figure it out. Uh, and some recent work, which I've just seen by an excellent graduate student in Cambridge, uh, shows that partly that was because the Scots disproportionately volunteered. Uh, and, and, and indeed, the highest voluntary uh, vol rates of volunteering in 1914 were in the highlands of Scotland, where nearly every adult male uh, enlisted almost as soon as the war uh, had been going a few weeks. So uh, for, for a Scotsman, the First World War is special, and, and the Second World War uh, clearly is of great historical uh, significance, but its impact 
on Scottish society was less. Uh, and, and so for me, it was almost uh, an unavoidable uh, uh, reckoning with the past, to try to understand what had happened, to try to understand why it had left such deep scars uh, in, as it were, my family's collective memory. Uh, and I, 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 I almost felt impelled towards the subject as the anniversary of 1918 uh, neared in, in the uh, in the mid 1990s, and wrote the pity of war very fast, uh, trying to grapple with a series of uh, of questions that had been haunting me in my teaching for years. And I should say at this point that I'm not really a, a fully paid up member of the the narrative history society, um, in the sense that uh, the pity of war is a quite deliberately non narrative work. It's an analytical work which asks a succession of almost essay questions, rather as if I put the reader through nine uh, nine Oxford tutorials. And it quite deliberately sets out to um, to analyze the historical problem that is 1914-18 uh, rather than take you through the story. I felt that had been done ad nauseum by previous mm. historians. But b before we get to that, I want you, your grandfather, John Gilmore Ferguson, is one of the people you dedicate the pity of war to. What do you remember about him? Wheezing. He had um, very bad lungs by the time I knew him. I was uh, sitting on his knee when he was uh, uh, a really quite ill man with emphysema. He'd smoked all his life um, uh, and he got addicted to cigarettes in the trenches as a teenager. Uh, as many soldiers do, nicotine is a great drug for soldiers. And, uh, and so I recollect his ill health. Uh, I recollect asking why he had uh, uh, such poor health compared with my my mother's father, and uh, and it then transpired that uh, that gas had played a part. Uh, he'd actually uh, been uh, been affected by mustard gas uh, during his time in the trenches. And I remember little else about him because I was very young when he died. Um, I didn't have the kind of conversations I later had with my my mother's father, who who had served in Burma during World War Two in the Royal Air Force. Uh, and whose experiences I've spent a lot of time recently investigating, because unlike my father's father, uh, he wrote letters, or at least he wrote letters that had been preserved. Um, my knowledge of my grandfather's uh, First World War experiences is very fragmentary, and it, it's based on all that survives uh, of his service record. He, he didn't leave a great uh, treasure trove of documents which is quite an important thing to bear in mind. We always tend to write the history of the, of the people who wrote a lot and whose stuff has survived. My grandfather was more of an everyman. His war was a non-literary war, and his experiences of it largely survived through, through memory and through, through, uh, through conversation. But you have his kilt. I have his kilt. He actually fought day. in a kilt. They did all wear kilts, uh, and it caused them all kinds of bother because uh, uh, Scotsmen wear nothing under the kilt. The, uh, the Highlanders were very vulnerable to, to gas, which, uh, which uh, rose up underneath the kilt and, uh, and would burn areas that were sweaty. Do I need to go on? Mm -hmm. um, that was why, ultimately, there were moves to try to uh, replace the kilt, but the, uh, the Highland regiments resisted it because it was a badge of their, uh, if you like, their fighting identity. And it's part of the reason you wrote The Pity of War, because, you ha you're because of your grandfather? Definitely. Absolutely. I wanted to understand his experience better. Uh, one of the things that, that's central to the book is that uh, I argue that uh, the, for the, uh, the likes of my grandfather, the ordinary enlisted men who weren't officers, who hadn't been to university or indeed public school, uh, the war was not the hell that it is thought of by people who read only the poetry of Wilfred Owen or, or the fiction of Siegfried Sassoon, and that for ordinary men like my grandfather, there were 
there were reasons why the war could be continued. My, my question in one of the chapters in the period of war is, if it was as bad as we are led to believe when we study the war poets or read much of the conventional um, literature on the subject, why did it keep going for four and a quarter years? Why is there so little indiscipline? Why is there so little desertion? Uh, why is it, in fact, that only a tiny number of, of British soldiers uh, do have nervous breakdowns? It is complicated. And I think also, I mean, I think most sort of research on why soldiers fight seems to show that they fight for their units. And you get this extraordinarily close bond. I mean, All Quiet in the Western Front has a bit of that, I think, a lot of it, about how you ha- have this tremendous the Eric, loyalty. The Eric Marie Remark uh, novel. Yeah, the wonderful novel, which, which you know, I used to have my students read, and, and the young men in particular were very, very struck by it and very moved by it, because, in fact, I think it does reflect. But anyone who reads Remarks All Quiet in the Western Front should be f- compelled by some kind of law to read Ernst Jünger's Storm of Steel, which is the kind of mirror image German mm. account of the war written by mm. a man who would become a, a strange uh, 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 almost prophet of industrialized war and some would say of fascism uh, a guy whose view of military conflict bordered on the mystical but whose account in Storm of Steel of being uh, one of the Stoss troops, one of the storm troop uh, officers in World War One is absolutely riveting not yeah. least because he makes it clear how thoroughly fulfilling uh, yeah. being at the sharp end of organized yeah. violence is. Yeah. Well you've got all those people after the war in Germany and elsewhere who joined veterans associations and talked about the good old days. I mean, it is, it's, it's more complicated, I think, than, 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 we, than, than perhaps we realize now looking back at it. Now, Margaret Macmillan, your great-grandfather was David Lloyd George, the Prime Minister of England during the Paris Peace Conference of 1919. How much do you think your personal connection to him had to do with your wanting to write about the war and the conference? Um, in fact, I think, if anything, it probably put me off. Um, I mean, I was very interested in the First World War, partly because of my Canadian and, and Welsh grandfathers. But I'd grown up hearing a bit about my grand- great-grandfather and, and... What? Because you grew up in, in, in Toronto. I grew up yeah. in Toronto, but my yeah. mother was his granddaughter. She remembered him, and I knew my grandmother quite well and my great-aunt, both of whom remembered him and were very vivid personalities. And, of course, they tended, not my mother so much, but my grandmother and my great-aunt tended to take the point of view that their father was always right. And then when I studied history, and I think in a way you almost react against being told about an ancestor. I thought, well, I'm not going to read about him. I don't need to, and I'm not interested. And when I sort of did history at university, I, I thought, well, you know, he probably was the sort of bad prime minister that John Maynard Keynes said he was. I'm not going to be influenced because I have any connection. In fact, far from it, I'll show that I can be quite dispassionate. And so in a funny way, um, I almost didn't look at the peace conference because of my family connection. It didn't draw me to it. I looked at the peace conference because I became more and more interested in international relations, more and more interested in the conference itself because it struck me as an extraordinary event and and so many issues I was teaching about seemed to have been reflected there or started there or some way affected by what happened there. And as I did it, um, I actually learned a great great deal more about Lloyd George than I'd ever known. And I came in the end to, to modify my opinion a lot. I mean, I came in the end to think that, in fact, he was a very skilled politician, a very great negotiator, someone who was very funny, and someone who was often, in my view at least, on the right side of issues. Your mother was right. My mother was right, yes. You should always listen to your mother and your grandmother, I guess. The First World War is widely thought to be the formative event of the 20th century. I mean, people often date the beginning of the 20th century as August 1914, that it, it shaped not only the 20th century, but its impact continues today. Why? What made the First World War different from other wars? Well, it really does mark an end, I think, of a certain type of civilization. I mean, the Europeans in particular 
I think, not only see destruction of cities, destruction of towns, loss, appalling loss of young men, I mean, far more than in the Second World War. I mean, civilians died in the Second World War, but not on young men did not die on the scale they did in the First World War. I think there was a sense. I mean, I, I think, you know, the Europeans really lost in confidence. I mean, they were losing. I mean, there were always those before the First World War who said, well, look, we're not as good as all that and the things that are going wrong. I mean, there, was, there were critics from both the left and the right. But I do think there was a sense um, that a lot of people shared before 1914 that Europe was in the forefront of civilization, that things were getting better, that progress actually meant something, not just material progress, but also moral progress. You know, the world was getting a better place and Europe was, was leading it to this better place. And after 1919, Europeans couldn't say that. I mean, I think there was a real loss of confidence. And I think you see it in their empires. You know, I think they lose some of the certainty they've had. One of the shocks of the First World War was the unprecedented number of deaths on the battlefield. Uh, more than nine million soldiers died fighting on both sides. What effect did that have on the European psyche? Well, it varied enormously from country to country because the, the, the mortality rates were really quite uh, divergent. Mm. Uh, and I think uh, the question you have to ask yourself is why did the kind of shock uh, of of uh, mass death have such different outcomes politically. Mm. Uh, I mean, after all, uh, you you couldn't really get two societies more different in their in their mental state by 1939 than France, defeatist, willing to do almost anything to avoid another war, and Germany, resurgent and and apparently ready to to rerun the whole thing. So the answer seems to me to be not that mortality matters. High mortality rates uh, in relation to the population were bad, but actually with the birth rate what it was at that time, replacement was remarkably swift. The real question was whether the mortality uh, was seen to have been worthwhile. And paradoxically, the French, having won the war, came to the conclusion that it hadn't been worth it. Uh, and the Germans, having lost, came to the conclusion that it would be well worth tra trying again in the hope of obtaining victory. But there also seems to be some just effect on, on, on the European psyche. I think you yourself once said that the, the First World War was a greater shock. The, the critic George Steiner has talked about how once casually, casualty lists of 30,000 a day began appearing in, in Europe in 1916, that, that, that something goes out of the world, that the, the world actually changes. Well, uh, clearly, the, the, the uh, effect of industrialized slaughter, which is what the First World War was really all about, particularly on the Western Front, uh, was to cast serious doubt on West European claims uh, to being the standard bearers of civilization. Uh, and that, that, I think, is one reason why self-doubt crept in. I entirely agree with Margaret. When I was uh, working on, on, on my book, Empire, uh, I was uh, my, my default setting, if you like, was that uh, Britain's crisis of confidence after World War I was economically determined, that the sheer cost of fighting the First World War saddled the country with such a, a burden of debt that it could no longer really afford uh, the vast overseas commitments that it had, uh, had accumulated. And, and that's true. That's not wrong. But what's also really striking is that uh, the men on the ground uh, in the interwar period are assailed by doubts which really hadn't been there before. And I think those doubts had a lot to do with the memory of what had happened in 1914-18. Think of, think of the difficulty Orwell has in shooting an elephant with simply putting up with being the hated face uh, of the British police in Burma. Um, uh, think of the doubts, which of course predated the war, of, of, a, of a Leonard Wolfe about what 
could possibly be done to to uh, impose any kind of uh, meaningful progress on the, the teeming anthill of India. I think, of course, it's, it's a very important point to bear in mind, and I think this, uh, this is a, a question for cultural historians, um, whether these doubts, in fact, predated the war. Most of the big changes in, in art, in, in, in which we tend to lump together and call modernism, were well established before 1914. And in many ways, the First World War provided brilliant subject matter for well-advanced uh, artistic uh, movements. And we sometimes misread that as historians. We say, oh, there was this great seer and everybody lost confidence. And instead of painting nice realist works, they all ran around doing expressionism. Wrong. Expressionism was well established. When Otto Dix went to war, he already had the techniques to depict uh, organized violence. But now he had the subject matter to make the pictures rather more more compelling. So in that sense, I'm, I'm slightly wary of seeing the First World War as a big cultural break, least of all in Britain, where I'm constantly amazed by the conservatism uh, of 1920s British culture compared, say, with 1920s German culture. Um, but there is definitely a big change in attitudes about power and violence. And all those rather compelling claims that had been made before 1914 about the superiority uh, of the way the British did things looked a lot less compelling after Passchendaele, mm. uh, to, to cite just the, the most egregious example of mm. futile slaughter. But you also you, you you even think that Great Britain didn't need to get involved in the First World War. Oh yes, with all due respect to Margaret's distinguished ancestor, Lloyd George made one of the greatest mistakes uh, in all history on the second of August, nineteen fourteen, when instead of as everybody expected him to do, speaking up against intervention uh, uh, in the First World War, what became the First World War, uh, he said nothing, and the minority of hawks. In the Liberal cabinet, Gray, Churchill, and very reluctantly the Prime Minister Asquith, were able to, in fact, uh, roll effectively the rest of their colleagues into support for intervention in the Continental War. I think if Lloyd George had spoken against it, his uh, his authority among the the left of the Liberal Party would have had enormous weight. Instead, after hesitating, uh, he lent his support to the war with with enormous effectiveness. I mean, I think there can be few other reasons why everybody believed they were fighting for Belgian neutrality than the speeches that Lloyd George made in the opening weeks of the war. And I don't think it was really a very smart decision uh, for the Liberals to intervene in 1914. Not because I have any great desire uh, to imagine a world in which the Kaiser's Germany uh, dominates the European continent, uh, because I think for many people that would have been a rather unhappy solution, particularly for, for France, um, though preferable to 1940. More because it seems to me we need to expose what went wrong in British strategic planning in the run up to 1914. And it's very clear that this dominant power, the British Empire, was being challenged uh, by a German rival. The question was how to deter the German rival for, from an all-out bid uh, for world power. And I think the British failed to do this. Why? Because Lloyd George and his Liberal colleagues were not prepared to introduce conscription and have a properly uh, kitted out land army ready for a European war. They just wouldn't do it. They made a commitment to France. They knew about their commitment to Belgium. They knew damn well the Germans were planning something. It was an open secret. And yet they were absolutely unable to make the transition to an effective deterrence based 
on a on a land a large scale land army. Now, if you don't have the land army, stay out of the First World War. If you want to intervene, uh, then you're going to intervene at a very high cost to your empire. That's, I think, why the First World War drags on as long as it does, because the British have to create this army on the job, train it. Uh, while the war is going on and send it into battle at the Somme in 1916, completely unready to take on the Germans. The trouble was, I suppose, politically it was simply impossible for the Liberals to think of conscription. I mean, they, they had the same problem after the war. I mean, it, it, was, it was seen as something that went across against all British traditions, something that only those sort of awful people on the continent did. It wasn't necessary. But, but Margaret, don't you think, therefore, no commitments no to commitments. France? No commitments. I mean, that's, that was, oh, no, Lloyd commi- George, that was great. But, no. but that, that, to make a commitment to, to, to support France in the event of war with Germany and not have yeah. a serious army yeah. was crazy. Yeah. No, and the, and the commitments, I mean, the cabinet later on said they didn't know about them, but they knew perfectly well what was happening. I mean, they, and they were deeply undemocratic. They were not being discussed publicly. The trouble, I mean, I, I like the pity of war immensely, and I... I, I thought you did what you set out to do. You raised all these questions, and I thought it was wonderful. But I still, you know, a a continent dominated by the Kaiser's Germany would have been a pretty awful place. I mean, here you have this very powerful country, which, yes, does have Democrats within it, does have sort of civil society within it, but it has this, as someone described it, a comic opera constitution where the Kaiser and and the people at the top who have far too much power over over military and and, and, uh, foreign policy... And a Kaiser who is probably nuts. I mean, you know, there was that point in, I think it was 1908, 1909, in one of the crises over Morocco, where his own government thought of having him declared insane and declaring a regency. You know, and, and this would have been the country that would have dominated um, wonderful elements within it, but the some of the worst elements seem to be actually riding high and, and dominating it. I mean, I don't know. what, what su- Would such a Europe have been a peaceful place? Well, I think part of our problem here is that we find it very hard to escape from under the mantle of uh, wartime propaganda about the Kaiser's Germany. Uh, and the British were devastatingly good at this. They knew exactly how to portray uh, Wilhelmine Germany as uh, as a monstrous despotism uh, from the moment the war began. Well, some of it was true, though. Well, in fact, I think when one uh, goes back and tries to understand uh, Wilhelmine Germany on the eve, the things that strike me all the time are the extraordinary modernity and sophistication of so many parts of that society. It clearly had the best universities and higher education mm. in the world at that time. Uh, it had the biggest social democrat party by far. Mm. Uh, in many respects, its parliamentary system was evolving rapidly towards a, a system of, uh, uh, of, of both parliamentary accountability and uh, very successful federal devolution. The power of the Kaiser, for just the reason you've given, was on the wane because the Kaiser himself was nicht ernst zu nehmen, not se- not to be taken seriously. Mm. Uh, and in many ways, uh, Imperial Germany was uh, at a tipping point in the direction uh, of uh, uh, really, by uh, both British and American standards, uh, a relative political normalcy. The question then becomes, what would the effect of a successful war have been? Uh, we don't know. We have to speculate. But it is by no means clear that it would have been to strengthen the reactionary forces within German society. That's a kind of assumption that many historians make. uh, One of the people who'd been uh, Chancellor of the Reich before the war, uh, Prince Bülow, and his successor, Betzmann, who actually uh, got Germany into the war, both thought that the effect of war would actually be to strengthen the left in German society uh, and, and in fact, make it impossible to withhold from the Social Democrats a share uh, of government. And indeed, that turned out to be the case, even in, in, a, in a war that Germany lost. So put it this way, I don't think the case is conclusively made that uh, uh, the Kaiser's Germany was 
even half as bad, a quarter as bad, a tenth as bad as Nazi Germany. Uh, and of course, if there had been a victorious First World War for Germany, there would have been no Hitler, no Nazi Germany. It wouldn't have been necessary. There would just have been a really successful uh, constitutional monarchy running a continental European empire. I, I think most people, in yeah, fact, could have, have lived with that. Well, well I don't know. I don't, because, I mean, what you might have had, I mean, tipping points can tip this way or that. I mean, what you might have had is a triumphalist Germany um, in which the right, I mean, and so much of the left was swept away by patriotism and, and uh, German nationalism, in fact, in, in, in 1914, it could have gone the other way. I mean, you know, I don't think we'll ever know. I mean, it, it, I find it absolutely, you know, fascinating to wonder. But what if you'd had a triumphalist Germany, you know, you, you had all these plans in the foreign office, in the high command to incorporate large bits of Belgium, of, of the Netherlands, bits of the north of France. The Baltic move, states. Oh, and then to move in on Russia, Ukraine. Africa. And, you know, one of the important points about those plans is that if they had wanted peaceful coexistence with Britain, uh, they really wouldn't have been able to go ahead with uh, annexing even part of Belgium. Whereas it would have been very tempting uh, to devote their energies to eastward expansion into the uh, into the, what would have been the defeated Tsarist Empire. Uh, was that in any way to the disadvantage of Britain? Not at all. I think that the German right would have soaked, spent all their energies, expended them harmlessly in creating uh, Mickey Mouse uh, princedoms and dukedoms in Kurland, uh, uh, Letland, uh, and so on. And and really, the the whole thing would have. Uh, would have been, from a British point of view, a tremendous step forward. Incidentally, it would also have been rather beneficial uh, for the Jews of Eastern Europe, uh, paradoxical though it may sound, because their uh, condition under Russian rule uh, had been far from happy. They'd been subjected to more or less officially sanctioned pogroms. Whereas the Kaiser's uh, Germany, and mm. this is often forgotten, yeah. uh, had com gave complete political and civil rights to Jews and would have been welcomed by the Jews of Eastern Europe had, had it taken control. Uh, uh, of that part of the world. So, you know, there's a lot of upside to, to a German victory. Um, it, it, admittedly, from a British point of view, there's a risk. And yeah. the risk is uh, the pot potential of German naval bases uh, yeah. near to the channel. Uh, and I think that ultimately is why uh, the argument for intervention was a very compelling one. Uh, but uh, I still come back to my point. If you're going to take the Germans on, you better get that army together sometime before August 1914. Yeah. Margaret McMillan, in your book, Paris 1919, looks at the critical six months of the Paris Peace Conference that led up to the Treaty of Versailles. What was the goal of the treaty? The goal, well, the trouble is it had many goals. I mean, it was partly to punish those who were responsible for the war. I mean, the war had gone on so much longer than anyone had thought and cost so much more than anyone had thought possibly ever it ever could cost, that there was a huge demand for, to pay for it. And when awful things happen, it's, I think, a very natural human reaction to say someone must have done it. It must be someone's fault. And it was also, I think, in, in the sort of Euro tradition of European wars that when you lost, you paid a fine, you lost territory, you lost possessions of some sort or another. I mean, this was to be expected. The thing about the First World War is it was so much bigger, and so what was expected of Germany was so much bigger. The bill was that much bigger, and the expectations were that much bigger. And so the treaty was partly about assigning blame, partly about making Germany cough up for a lot of the damage that was done. I mean, you know, the French and the Belgians had a very good argument here. The war on the Western Front was fought on their soil. So it was their factories, their mines, their railways that were destroyed. Um, Germany was relatively unscathed. And as a French newspaper said, why should the French taxpayer pay for this? You know, France was attacked by Germany in 1914, not the other way around, and so was Belgium. 
And so that was part of the treaty. Um, part of it was to try and build a better world. Woodrow Wilson, the American president, insisted that the covenant of the League of Nations, the founding document of the League of Nations, be inserted into the beginning of that treaty. And I think as the treaty writing went on, everyone else who had any sort of um, claims on Germany or anything they wanted tended to pop it in as well. And so you ended up with a treaty that was, I think, 441 articles, and it was a real mishmash. I mean, on the one hand, you had the League of Nations, grand ide ideals for a new world. On the other hand, you had the clause that said the skull of, um, I think it was Chief Muteza from German Nyasaland, which is in the Ethnographic Museum in Berlin, must be returned. So that you've got this extraordinary mishmash, which no one had properly read through. And it was cobbled together. Um, it was also having to deal with complete chaos on Germany's eastern frontiers, because the collapse of both Austria-Hungary and, and Russia had left all that very fluid. And so it was trying to settle new frontiers, trying to deal with Germany, trying to build a new world. And I think it's not surprising it was a bit of a mess. My own view is it wasn't as harsh as the Germans felt. Um, I think the Germans had unrealistic expectations of how they would be treated at the peace conference. And I don't think anyone who loses a war ever likes their peace terms anyway. And there was a lot to irritate the Germans in it, but when you look at all the different terms, in the end it didn't leave Germany significantly weaker. In fact, in some ways it left it stronger um, because Germany was a much more compact country. It no longer had a common border with Russia because Poland now had re-emerged. It no longer had an Austria-Hungary. And I think the proof of that, really, in a way, is, is that in 1939, Germany was able to make war on Europe and conquer most of it in about two years. I think if you look at the other treaties, because, of course, Versailles was only one of a package of, of treaties signed in and around uh, Paris in 1920, uh, uh, of all the defeated powers, Germany got off lightest. The other empires were, were dismantled. Hungary lost vastly more territory under, I think it was the Treaty of Trianon, correct yeah. me if I'm wrong, Margaret. Yeah. Um, uh, Turkey was carved up good and proper. There was no more Ottoman Empire. No, the Germans in territorial terms lost maybe 10%, 11% of their, of their pre-war territory. It was nothing compared with what the other losers had to put up with. The only real question was whether the Germans were prepared to pay uh, for the cost of the war. And uh, there were plenty of precedents for doing this because the Germans had uh, had stung uh, the French, French for a colossal uh, amount war. of money. Well, and the Russians uh, in, in 1918. The yeah. Germans had asked for a, a bill that uh, was uh, completely staggering uh, at Brest-Litovsk in 1918. So there was no question that they were going to have to pay something. The problem was that, that, that nobody uh, devising the treaty had any uh, idea of how to compel or incentivize the Germans to pay. They were just expected to do it voluntarily, whereas there was a really serious military occupation in, in northern France at the end of the Franco-Prussian War. Uh, and the deal was, you pay, we go. Uh, the problem with the way it was set up after Versailles was, you don't pay, we come. Uh, in other words, we'll occupy the Ruhr uh, if you don't pay. We, we will take military sanctions if you don't pay. That wasn't as good a setup. The incentives were not good for the new German Republic to cooperate. Uh, and I think the example of the 1870s suggests that it could all have worked a lot more smoothly, that there was great willingness in the United States to lend the Germans money. Uh, they saw Germany as the economy that would bounce back most strongly. It was the tiger economy, if you want to call it, that of the pre-1914 period. The money was there. I think if the technical side of, uh, of the piece, the economic side of it had been better constructed, then it might actually have worked. 
Um, the problem, I think, was uh, partly, as I've said, the incentives weren't there, and partly the Germans didn't really believe they'd lost the war. Yeah. Yeah. And that belief problem, uh, precisely because it had all been fought abroad, precisely yeah. because hardly any of the fighting had happened in Germany, the Germans had the illusion, we didn't really lose. We were undefeated in the field. Yeah. That phrase tells you more, I think, than any other phrase, uh, and it was used by the uh, Friedrich Ebert, the, uh, the first uh, yeah. president of the New Republic. Well, Margaret, why did, you also, why they also wouldn't accept defeat? Yeah. You also felt there was a mistake to leave the German army standing uh, in, in foreign territory. Well, it, it, I mean, as, as, as Neil said, I mean, they marched home and, and Ebert, the new president, said, we greet you, undefeated. Um, and the other sort of, um, I think, wrong but very powerful um, myth that grew up was that they, we were stabbed in the back. If we had to stop fighting, it was because of all these dreadful people at home, the Jews, the socialists, the left-wingers, the liberals of various sorts who, who made us stop fighting. Um, the trouble from the Allied point of view was that they knew there would be trouble if they didn't go into Germany, but they weren't sure they could bear the cost. The only people who really wanted to march into Germany and, and run the risk of more losses were the Americans because they were relatively fresh. But Marshal Foch, the Generalissimo, the Supreme Allied Commander on the Allied side, said, look, you know, I can't do it. I cannot lose more French lives. I cannot lose more British lives. We just can't do it. And in retrospect, they, they probably should have done it, but I can understand precisely why they did it in in November 1918. Um, the Germans also, I think, felt, and this was partly because of the way the peace came, Woodrow Wilson did it very publicly through a series of, of notes which were broadcast to Germany. The Germans also came to feel that they had surrendered on the basis of Woodrow Wilson's promise of a new diplomacy with no annexations, no indemnities, no, no payments, and that therefore they weren't going to be treated badly. I mean, I think this was unrealistic. I mean, they'd, they'd come to feel that they weren't going to have to pay anything for having lost the war, as Neil said, they didn't really think they'd lost it anyway. And I think finally what happened is they had a revolution in Germany when the Kaiser went off to exile in the Netherlands and they got a new republic, um, no more monarchy. And I think a lot of people in Germany felt, you know, we're different. We've wiped the slate clean. We've got rid of the old bunch who got us into this mess. Why should we pay for their mistakes? And so for a whole lot of reasons, there was a real unwillingness on the part of Germans to pay. And the enforcement mechanism, which was there in the treaty, was just not used. I mean. The French would have used it or tried to use it, but they needed British backing, and the British increasingly decided it wasn't worth the effort. Well, the British had got what they wanted in some ways. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the timing of the of the piece is very important for one of the reasons that uh, 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 Margaret's given. The other reason, of course, the British were desperate to end the war before the Americans were completely in the driving seat and able to dictate the terms of the peace. And with every day of, the, of, of, of war in November or December 1918 into 1919, the American military contribution was going to, going to grow. I mean, by the time the the war was over, the Americans had practically a million men ready to, to deploy. The British wanted the war to stop while they were winning it, and while the Americans were really just a kind of a junior partner, because then they could dictate the terms of the peace. And the great thing to understand about British priorities is that almost immediately they reverted to imperial uh, the imperial uh, mode, i.e. the British weren't that interested in the way things were going to pan out in Europe. They didn't actually care terribly much about reparations, because uh, their financial position was far less uh, uh, grievous than, than the French financial position. They just wanted the German Empire and well, the German Navy to be sunk, and they got both of those yeah. things. Uh, job done. No wonder the British felt smug. No. Oh yeah, no, no. They took a very high moral tone, as as did people like the Americans and the Canadians. I mean, you know, as Canadians, we're good at taking high moral tones sometimes. And we came in saying we don't want anything for ourselves; we just want a better world. Although we did look rather longingly at the Alaska Panhandle when we got our chance, and and did make a few noises. You no, know, I think the British reverted. Um, they they, and I think they came rapidly to think that the French were being unreasonable. I mean, I I actually now, I mean. 
Yes, the French probably were being unreasonable, but I think they had every reason to be. I've, I've come to feel increasingly sympathetic to the French position. I mean, the, Germany declared war on them. They are the ones who suffer um, enormous losses. And in the end, they're left without the guarantee of protection. Both Britain and the United States promised to come to their defense if attacked by Germany. And that falls flat because the U.S. Senate rejects the peace treaty and the guarantee. And the British then say, well, the guarantee really only mattered to us, or we only really were going to do it if the, if the Americans did it with us. I'm sorry, no, you no longer have a guarantee. And so the French are left very vulnerable. And you mentioned earlier on, I mean, the demographic thing. I mean, the French weren't reproducing fast enough. And that really worried them. I mean, far fewer French babies were being born than German babies. And they knew that by the middle of the 1930s, they would have what they called the hollow years. There were, there were just going to be an awful lot less men to make into soldiers in France than there were in Germany. And I think they were very, very worried about this. I mean, I don't know. Looking back, I mean, people say, could they have done it better? What should they have done? It's very difficult to see what they could have done better. I mean, I think in many cases, what they were dealing with in Paris were forces that were simply outside their control. And to blame individual decisions, yes, you can blame some of them. I mean, I think you can blame a lot of the decisions made in the Middle East. But what was to be done with Europe? You couldn't put the pieces back together again of Austria-Hungary. You couldn't deal with Russia. It was in the throes of a civil war. It wasn't clear how that was going to turn out. Um, what did you do about Europe? And I don't think it was that easy. How did you draw all the boundaries in the middle of Europe when people were clamoring for ethnic states, when there was a complete ethnic mix on the ground? You couldn't create viable ethnic states without leaving minorities. Very, very hard. Part of the problem, of course, was that uh, uh, once you had uh, defeated the Germans, dismantled their empire, smashed uh, up the Russians, or at least the Germans had smashed them up enough so that they seemed to be out of the game. The Americans weren't interested. They, they were uh, voting for isolation. There were actually only two empires left standing, uh, and unless you count the sort of uh, trivial leftovers of the Dutch and Portuguese empires, and that was the British and French. Uh, and they were supposed to agree. They were supposed immediately to cooperate, uh, to yeah. reorder the world. The one thing that you could be absolutely sure of was that given how bad relations had been between Britain and France during the war, after the war, they would immediately deteriorate further. Uh, and that's, I think, the fundamental problem. I agree with Margaret. I think the French got a very bum deal. Uh, but in a way, the puzzle puzzling thing about the French was that they didn't lose in 1914-15. Uh, because according to the form book, both past and future, mm. they should have collapsed fairly quickly in the face of an overwhelming German military assault. Mm. The casualties the French sustain in the opening phase mm. of the war are devastating. And in a 1870 and in 1940 uh, would have more than sufficed to bring the war to conclusion. When you think about 1914 rather than 1919 as the decisive date in, in, in world history, one of the biggest puzzles of all is why the French don't collapse, because they suffer enough casualties to have, have done for them. Why did they keep fighting? Why were they able to sustain that? The trouble was it was something you could only do once, and having done it in 1914-15, there was no way they would ever do it again. Uh, the question really is, which, which Germany do you want to be defeated by? Do you want to be defeated by the Kaiser or by Hitler? You could only say this with the, the hindsight of <laughs> the 21st century. Margaret, at the end of Paris 1919, you wonder whether the First World War wasn't devastating enough to make people find a new way of managing international relations. And by all accounts, it was devastating. How devastating would it have to get in order to figure this out? I, I, I don't. That sounds like I want it to be devastating, which I didn't. I think we're still dealing with it. Clearly settling international disputes by these massive wars is, is in the end, benefits no one. What I, what I meant there was that in a funny way, the First World War wasn't properly finished. Um, it hadn't dealt with the problem of Germany at the heart of Europe, and it had, Germany itself hadn't decided what sort of Germany it was going to be. I mean, some historians are now talking about Europe's 30 years war, how 1914 
really doesn't finish until 1945. And it's awful to think that that had to be necessary. But what the First World War left was an unfinished bit of business. And it left a Germany resentful, thinking it had a bad deal, sitting at the heart of Europe. I, and I agree with Neil that it, it, you have to understand the forces in history. You have to understand who has what power and what, 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 who has what economic power as well as political power. But at certain moments, um, you also, I think, see that there are certain individuals who make a huge difference. If the bullet had gone a different way in the trenches in the First World War and no Hitler, I'm not sure it would have turned out quite like it did. But circumstance, um, and I think the Depression, the, the, which had a terrible impact on Germany, helped to push them, a number of them in the direction of Hitler. It seemed better than any of the alternatives. What, what about the art of, of peacemaking? I mean, one historian suggests that given the 99 years of relative peace in Europe before the First World War, in other words, since, you know, since 1815, then we have the First World War, another World War, other wars since then. Has peacemaking become a lost art? No, I don't think so. I mean, I, I, I think we're still, we've still got the old dilemma, which we, we had, you know, we've had, I think, right from the 19th century, even earlier, is do you keep peace in the world by a balance of power? You know, the, the, what's roughly called the realist approach. Do you, do you make sure you're strong or you have strong friends and, and that helps to keep peace? Or do you put your faith in international organizations? Um, do you think that human nature can be changed or modified so that people agree to settle their disputes peacefully, that you set up international organizations will do it, that will do it, international courts, international legal systems, and if necessary, international clout, um, you know, to, to wave the big stick and, and if necessary, use it at those who step out of line. I don't think we've settled that. I mean, at the moment, I think we're seeing, um, I don't know what we're seeing, actually, I'm, I'm having trouble working it out. But I think I think we're, we're seeing the United States, which sees power in terms of, of military power, um, and doesn't see the point of working through international organizations. But you know, it's it's spent a lot of its its history working, at least recently, in international organizations. I don't know. I mean, peacemaking itself, I mean, I think, you know, perhaps one of the bad things that has happened is statesmen have tended more and more to get involved in diplomacy. And, you know, diplomacy is an art. Um, it can often be very boring. You spend hours haggling over words, but it can be very, very important. And I think sometimes when you get statesmen turning their attention, which has turned to so many other things, they go in for two days and try and sort out the Middle East and then they jet off somewhere else. And I'm not sure that has been necessarily a beneficial development. I mean, it's quite useful if the, the, the big men put or the big women put their prestige and their influence behind a settlement, but actually working out the details. I mean, some of these are really boring, but necessary. How do you work out the status of, of Jerusalem, for example, if there is to be any um, lasting settlement between Jews and, and Arabs in, in, in Israel? How do you work that out? Well, a lot of it's really boring about who can drive a bus through which street and how do you do it, which is where you need the diplomats. And I think in a way we've tended to devalue the, the, the sorts of things they do, and we, we go for the dramatic gestures, the big gestures, but often the details are the things that are really important. Neil, you enjoy imagining alternative versions of the past. I mean, you've even put together a book on virtual history. Why is it useful to go back again and again to, to that pivotal moment of the First World War? Well, we can't understand the past if we assume that there's only one possible linear development from there to the present. If we want to recapture the past as it actually was, which was Ranker's great uh, uh, injunction to historians, wie es eigentlich gewesen, then what we have to do is to recapture the uncertainty of actors at that time. We have to recapture the alternatives that were before them. In 1914, there was a choice. It was an extremely difficult choice for British policymakers to stay out, to stand aside, as the British Foreign Secretary put it, or to intervene. 
And to understand the consequences of intervention, you must try to imagine what the consequences of standing aside would have been, because that is what living the past really means. We have to recapture the alternative futures which Gray had to consider, which all the British politicians, including Lloyd George, had to consider. Uh, if we don't do that, then we, we inhabit a teleological universe in which the past was bound to lead here to where we are today. Mm. Margaret, what can we gain besides a, a certain frustration that things hadn't happened differently? I think it is so important to look at the alternatives. I mean, there was, there was a very great philosopher of history, R.G. Collingwood, who always said this, that if you want to understand Caesar crossing the Rubicon, you have to, you, you don't become Caesar. You can't ever do that. What you have to do is put yourself in his shoes as he stood on the edge of the Rubicon and thinks, if I do this, what then? Should I do this? Should I do something else? And you know, I, I couldn't agree more. I think you have to try and be aware. I mean, the other question I think I keep find myself asking the whole time is, if you had been there, what would you have done? If you're going to criticize a decision, all right, given what you had, given what power you had, given what options you had, what would you have done? How would you have done it differently? And I think that's also a question we have to ask. I think you know, there's a certain humility with which we have to look at the past. There's a danger that we tend to assume because we know how it turned out that we also knew we know much more than they did at the time, that we're much cleverer and that we can see much more clearly. And of course we see clearly because we look back and we see it all turning out the way it did turn out. But I think we have to keep on reminding ourselves that people at the time were, were sentient people, often people of, of very great um, wisdom and knowledge, um, sometimes not, all right. But like us, they were making decisions, and I think you have to try and understand that, and you have to try and not be unreasonably censorious. I mean, I think you can't expect them to, to do things that they couldn't possibly have done. Um, yes, you can say they made a wrong decision here because they did have alternatives, but to sort of shake a stick at the past and say you should never have done that, I think is, 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 is not to be a good historian. Margaret McMillan, Neil Ferguson, thank you both very much. Thank you. Thank you. Margaret McMillan and Neil Ferguson in Toronto in 2003. Neil Ferguson's The Pity of War and Empire are available in paperback from Basic Books. Margaret McMillan's Paris 1919, Six Months That Changed the World, and her 2013 title, The War That Ended Peace, The Road to 1914, are also available in paperback. Writers and Company is produced by Mary Stinson. Katie Swales is associate producer. Technical operations by Laura Antonelli. We always like to hear from you. Our email address is writersandco at cbc.ca, and the telephone number is 416-205-6631. For news and reviews all about books, check out cbcbooks.ca. The executive producer is Tara Mora. I'm Eleanor Wachtel, and I'll be back again next week. I hope you'll join me. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.